This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Program. You are listening to 3CR Melbourne. Tonight we'll be continuing our show about Drawdown by Paul Hawken. For the first two stories, looking at the intersection between climate change and women's rights. Last week, Vivian chatted with Dr. Helen Redman from Doctors for the Environment, an independent group, doctors and students. They look at family planning, which is ranked number seven of all the hundred solutions for ways to combat climate change. I have live in the studio Erica Bertelson, who is the International Program Manager for One Girl, a charity that looks at the education of women, which is number six from Drawdown. These are really exciting findings and great moments for so- where social benefits fully align with climate benefits, so stay tuned for that. Finally, we will be talking to Michael West about a report on a- and documentary released in conjunction with the Greenpeace investigative unit called Dirty Power. This is an urgently needed investigation about how big coal influences government decision-making. We also have a special message at the end of the show about why this election is so important for Australia and climate change. Now, with Vivian talking to Helen Redmond. Here's a headline, listeners. To stop climate change, educate girls and give them birth control. was the uh, headline for an article I read. So, good evening, everybody. My name is Vivian Langford, and this is part of our series on the top ten drawdown strategies in the book of that name, edited by Paul Hawken. As we said last week, from this moment on, despair ends and tactics begin, which was seen on a wall in London with a picture of a child holding the Extinction Rebellion flag. It is a stunning fact that if we invested $39 billion, according to the United Nations, just in family planning and girls' education, we could draw down 59 gigatons of CO2 equivalent. Many studies show that women with more education have fewer children and they are healthier children. Maternal and infant mortality is lower for educated women and girls who stay in school are less likely to be child brides. But as the Drawdown Project points out, this is a sensitive subject and it is not for those in the rich countries to be telling low-income countries how to lower their population. Unwanted births and having just one fewer child among high-carbon footprint nations would lower emissions quite quickly. Iran was able to halve its birth rate in what is considered one of the most successful voluntary programs in the world, and that was achieved in a decade, so there's hope. I have invited Dr Helen Redmond to speak to me about this chapter of Drawdown. Welcome, Helen, to the Beyond Zero Emissions Community Show. And first, would you tell us about Doctors for the Environment, which you represent, and why they are so concerned about climate change? Uh, Thank you, Vivian. Uh, It's great to be on the show again. Yes, I'm a volunteer with Doctors for the Environment Australia, and we have an independent voluntary organisation of doctors and medical students all around Australia. We have a rapidly growing membership, uh, especially in the last six months. Um, and we basically um, advocate for uh, protecting the environmental determinants of health 
and they include a stable climate, but they also include clean air, clean water, a safe food supply, um, and so on. So these are the big picture factors that ultimately determine human health. Uh, and Doctors for the Environment Australia has been doing a lot of advocacy um, around climate change and around decreasing fossil fuel use, around protecting uh, forests and biodiversity, uh, greening health care, uh, fossil fuel divestment, um, and um, uh, with, a, with a particular concern, I guess, at the moment regarding climate change and a, a really heavy uh, um, emphasis on advocacy um, and visiting politicians and so on, uh, uh, especially, um, well, especially this year in the lead up to the federal election. I'm glad to hear that young doctors and medical personnel are joining you and signing up because, as I said in that quote, from this moment on, despair ends and tactics begin. I think a lot of younger people are really starting to drift into despair and we have to get active as much as we can. Um, do you find that with people you meet? Um, I've been um, invited by medical students to speak um, recently for the um, Medical Students Association of New South Wales uh, and uh, global health groups. And uh, what I encounter is uh, medical students who are incredibly uh, motivated and committed to their career choice um, and who have lots of energy uh, for action um, on climate change and other global health issues and um, and I'm sure there are many who are who are quietly worried. I've also got the pleasure of lecturing in environmental health to medical students at UNSW and I really try to make those sessions uh, reach out to them and, and let them know what the supports are and action on these issues is actually improves your emotional resilience to, to deal with, with what we face. Well, let's get back to family planning and girls' education because it's when you read the drawdown book, it looks odd because everything else is about wind turbines and regenerative farm, you know, material sort of things. But this is about a behavioural change. And I believe that there are uh, 250 million women in low-income countries who've said they want to choose, they want to be able to choose whether or not they become pregnant. So is it really just a matter of making contraceptives free and freely available? Having free contraception is, is not enough. I think the, the successful uh, programs for family planning have uh, a component of education uh, and actually social change. So they put uh, advertisements on radio and television uh, and even insert sort of some um, role models, if you like, into soap operas that people watch. Mm. And those programs have been more successful uh, because they've um, allowed the expectations um, of those women to change. I read about the, that Iranian program that they said the religious leaders were engaged to, you know, promote this message and they did halve their birth rates. So it was a big society like that. That's kind of impressive. It is. It's it's great, and it it just goes to show uh, what can be done when you educate uh, women and provide them, and sort of normalise it, if you like, mm. uh, and provide them with the choice. So yeah. this is really about empowering women and providing them with the choice. And when you do that, um, they almost universally choose to take control of their fertility, have fewer children, and as you say, have therefore healthier children. 
uh, with more resources at their disposal to be well-nourished, to, to have health care and for them to have education uh, mm. as well. Okay, well, in high-income high countries like USA, um, the statistic I read about there is apparently 45% of pregnancies are unintended. doesn't necessarily mean unwanted, but, you know, unintended. So how would that compare to Australia? And what more can we do to educate girls and women here about reproductive health? Um, I actually don't know these figures for Australia, Vivian. Um, I'd be curious. It's very high for a developed country, isn't it? Well, there are always opportunities, I think, for education. It begins in begins in the home um, with um, the, the parents' attitude to um, to relationships, sexual activity, um, how that's framed in terms of culture or religion. Um, and all uh, girls are treated in, in, uh, as equal or not equal to, to boys. Uh, and, it, and it begins as well in schools with education regarding sort of safe boundaries in relationships, sexual education. And that is all integrated um, in Australia from even the primary school age um, and right through, through high school. So, um, and also, I suppose, in our society, it's quite open and free and um, and not too bound up by um, uh, by very strict religious religious mm. mores. So so kids have lots of um, access to education, and the the evidence is that um, in our society that uh, teenage pregnancy is actually declining quite significantly. I think it's halved. So in fact, I'm, I'm very surprised by that figure from the US. Yeah, well, was... uh, and I, w- I would almost guarantee it's not that high in Australia. Yes, well, that was just in Drawdown, and they they had a team and worked on that. But this is a very generalist book, so um, I, I just feel that we often think about whole population in terms of uh, poor countries, but they don't have the emissions that we have. And um, I know it's a very sensitive subject. We've done a lot of programs on behavioural change. For example, no flying. We interviewed the people, you know, who did the stay on the ground movement in Sweden and not eating meat. We've done that several times, not preventing food waste. They're all in the drawdown program as things that you can do, low-hanging fruit things, behavioural change. Um, But I have met, you know, some, going back to the despair idea, I have met some of the young anti-coal activists, you know, who say they, they won't be bringing any children into this horrific climate crisis. They're terribly aware of the next 50 years ahead. And uh, they, one of them told me that, and his mother said, oh, it's a terrible tragedy that that's how he thinks. And, but I wonder if telling young women and men in our society to have just one less child than they've planned because of the huge carbon footprint of each new child... It just seems very intrusive to me, and I wonder how you would go about it, raising this issue. Oh, I mean, I don't think that... Um, uh, I, I would feel very uncomfortable uh, weighing into anybody's personal choice about um, how, how many children that they have. I think it's people have to decide um, for themselves, and again, it comes back to um, being educated about the consequences um, I, I do have a, um, when I'm talking to the medical students, I do have a slide where I, it's a nice graphic uh, that I found where it shows you the sort of small impact things you can do to reduce your environmental footprint. 
things like recycling or changing your light globes, mm -hmm. going up to the medium impact mm -hmm. and then the high impact. And the high impact ones are things like giving up your car, not not taking that uh, around the world um, <laughs> air ticket, airline ticket. Yeah. Um, and the biggest one is not having a child. Um, or having one less child. Yes. So I mean, I say that. I say that. I say, look, you know, you know, this is the most important thing. But, but on the other hand, I mean, we need people who are born into uh, families that are caring and are full of resources and are very well educated mm. as well. We need, we need people like that. They're gonna because they're going to drive uh, some of the change and the leadership that we need mm. um, in the climate crisis that faces us. But on the other hand, I completely empathise with the coal activists uh, 30 years ago um, being aware already of climate change. Mm. I nearly decided not to have a family. Mm. And I remember speaking to a friend of mine. We were down in the southeast forest getting arrested. <laughs> we are trying to block the logging. Oh. Um, this is when I was a medical student. Yeah. And she just said to me, she said, oh, she said, I can't believe that she said, you know, if you decide not to have, have kids, if that's the way you feel, then you've really given up hope, haven't you? Oh, yeah. And I sort of thought about that and I thought, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, maybe maybe I'm being too sort of too glum about it. Um, so I did go on to go on and have two kids. Um, but, yeah, it's it's a very, oh, it's a very interesting one. I, I, it's very personal. But I, what what you see everywhere is you, if you give people the information, they make a decision based on that information. People make um, a decision um usually i mean usually people have less kids um once they're educated it's just such an established fact yeah. because they have less time they want to do other things they want to put more resources into each child i think um we don't need to do a china one child policy no i was just thinking of that one child policy it's not as draconian as that but one less is not so offensive but still no i think we can make able... the suggestion you know <laughs> yeah. make the suggestion and give people the information um but, well, you know, when I heard the student um, climate leaders, the strikers at the Melbourne Sustainable Living Festival, they were so on the front foot. They criticised all their textbooks. One of the people asked, well, what are you learning at school? And they said that thing about, um, you know, the biggest thing you can do is have one less child. They knew about that. They said our economics textbook doesn't tell us about growth. Our chemistry textbook doesn't really make it really clear what we're doing to the biosphere. They were fantastic. They're 14 years old, but they already sort of knew. So I think yeah. once this conversation starts becoming manageable, not a flat, dead, horrible death spiral kind of conversation, but an open and vivid conversation, people can contribute. I think it's wonderful that well, you could say what you did. That's fantastic. Okay, well, look, action is the answer, as you said before. And, look, I went to a, one of the candidates' forums that was held by Oxfam, and they were very worried at what they called our very stingy overseas aid budget and apparently according to drawdown there's 39 billion dollars shortfall in what could be done to just aid girls education just basic education to give them that lift and equality and uh, step up in society and the family planning advice support and contraception and I, I when I saw the graphs there Oxfam it's sort of less than half of one percent that Australia gives and I'm worried that so little of it is given to these uh, programs like we heard from Bangladesh and Iran that really work if they put them into it. Yeah, no, that's a big worry Action. because this is so well established. Um, and the other thing about educating women is you improve their capacity to 
uh, produce food off the land as well. Um, so there, there's a, a related chapter in Drawdown um, that I read showing that um, uh, farm yields can increase by up to 20% or so if you just give the women farmers the same resources as the men farmers have. Yeah. Uh, so there's all sorts of other um, side benefits as well um, uh, with it. So, yeah, I think it's shocking that we're not, uh, that Australia is not um, pu putting more of its aid effort into this area. Right. Thank you very much, Helen. We've been talking to Dr Helen Redmond. She's been our guest and representing the Doctors for the Environment Australia. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, Vivian. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, the voice of the community. Hell, I'm worried about climate change. Are we in trouble? Don't be glum, Dave. Right now, solar, wind power, hydropower, and carbon sequestration technologies are being developed throughout laboratories all over the world. I need more information, Hal. I can't give that to you, Dave. Tune in to BZE Technology on Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. When? Fridays, 8.30 to 9 a.m. on 3CR. Thank you, Andy, for that. Thank you. Um, many, many things happen when a woman completes secondary school. The, b the benefits are staggering and flow beyond the girl's immediate family and out into the community. Girls realise higher wages. They have lower instances of HIV and malaria. Their agricultural pro plots will be more productive and their families better nourished. They will also have fewer but healthier children and will actively manage their reproductive health. I recently discovered the charity One Girl who are operating throughout Uganda and Sierra Leone educating women. Erica Bertelson is the International Program Director. She has just come back from three months in Sierra Leone and Uganda. I'll let her tell you what, she's what she was working on. Thanks for coming on the show, Erica. Thanks so much for that great introduction, Kurt. It's a real pleasure to be here on the show today. So... Yeah, I did recently come back from Sierra Leone and Uganda. I spent most of my time in Sierra Leone. Um, I suppose, yeah, in Sierra Leone, it's, it's a really, really interesting and vibrant environment. It's hot, it's loud, and you can really feel the passion. Um, I think when I, when I think about Sierra Leone, I often think of how intoxicating it is. From the heat, it is extremely humid, like 90% humidity the majority mm. of the time. So you are sweating profusely mm. all of the time. Um, to how passionate people are about politics and about change in their environment. And that mm. makes it a really beautiful place to work. Um, and I will talk a little bit about Uganda as well, but a lot of my anecdotes come from Sierra Leone because I spent um, quite a significant amount of time there. Mm, by all means. Yeah, so what I do in Sierra Leone and Uganda is I'm the International Programs Director of One Girl. We're an NGO that works specifically with adolescent girls and we work to harness the power of education to create change for girls in their communities. And... Yeah, so my role really is looking at driving the strategic direction of our programs. So I have a team on the ground in Sierra Leone and also a number of different partners. So I work. I was working in everything from recruitment to administration. I was actually moving offices, which was really fun in mm -hmm. a foreign country. <laughs> and then also working on things like an evaluation for one of our major programs. So one, something that we really value at mm -hmm. One Girl is always learning and collaboration. And 
and that's that's why we do a lot of evidence-based practice and a lot of research. So I spent about four or five months in total uh, doing an evaluation, some of it from here and working with a team and then working with different people um, in country, both the girls that are involved in the program and actually this reflective practice to look at what impact they believe the program made in their lives. So that was one of the really cool things that I was Great. doing while I was there. Uh, would you... Just be able to compare the life of a girl in Uganda or Sierra Leone um, that receives secondary education to a girl that does not. Yeah, for sure. Um, So, yeah, a girl um, who is educated has so many more opportunities than one that is not. And as you spoke a little bit about before, um, uh, you know, she's a equipped with tools and knowledge that um, a girl who's uneducated um, does not. So, for example, if um, she is born to an an educated mother, Mm -hmm. um, she is 20% more likely to survive past the age of five. She also will earn 20% more for every year that she is educated, every additional year. And then that money will also be invested in her family. So we actually have seen that in our own programs. Um, So, for instance, we have one program where women are educated in menstrual hygiene Mm -hmm. and they form micro-enterprises. And what we've seen is women invest that profit back in their children's education. So around 85% of that profit goes back to the children. Wow. Wow. So what's a micro-enterprise? A micro enterprise. Okay, so that's just, it basically just means a small business. So these operate like savings groups. So mm-hmm. there are 20 women coming together yep. and having a collective savings group. And yeah, w- more women um, is more powerful, obviously, and they can yep. pool their resources and then invest it in different ventures. Great. And, and what percentage of women are currently finishing school? So in Sierra Leone, around 16% complete right. school, whereas in Uganda, I think it's around 13 And to put that in perspective, in Australia, that's 92%. Yeah, wow. Yeah, and also if you want to put it in perspective even more with what we do at One Girl, uh, in our scholarship program, currently 88% of the girls complete school. Right. And, and what are some of the barriers that stop a girl from finishing school? Okay, yeah, so there are a multitude of different barriers um, that uh, that affect a girl. And I think a good way to really understand this is thinking of the different spheres mm-hmm. um, that a girl enters and how they have an impact on her life. So that's talking about at the household level, at community level, school, and even national policy. So if I use an example of, say... Um, a young girl, imagine a girl, Fatmata, she's she's six years old mm. in Sierra Leone. She comes from a family of ten children, which is which is pretty normal. And seven of those are boys. Mm. And her family is very poor and they have to make they want to send everyone to school, but they have to make the tough choice of who to send to school. So her mother's uneducated, illiterate, and has never earned very much money. So who are they going to decide to send to school? Usually because of this um, lower status of a girl and lower value in um, future income generating potential, Mm -hmm. um, the boys will be sent to school instead. And to put it into perspective, household poverty in um, Sierra Leone, the GDP in Sierra Leone is $500 per capita. In Australia, it's over $50,000 per Mm -hmm. capita. And so if you just look at that, 
the cash that you have available. That's one one immediate barrier for access. And then beyond that, um, if she does manage to make it to school, um, if she manages to not get pregnant or end up being married as a child, um, about 40% of girls under the age of 18 in both mm-hmm. Sierra Leone and Uganda are married as children. Yeah, wow. Yeah, so if she does enter the classroom and she makes it past that, um, she also faces other challenges. So in Australia, we also we have this and we talk about investment in things like STEM. So STEM education is, you know, science, technology, engineering and math, and it's often promoted for girls and young women. Mm-hmm. So similarly in Sierra Leone, it's a little bit more extreme. Um, so if a girl has often they also... It's not only that the curriculum maybe isn't um, pushing them or encouraging them to take roles that are going to have more earning potential in the future. It's also that they don't have any female role models in the classroom. So, you know, like usually a girl will come into the classroom and she might have in a lot of our schools when I've when I've gone in, they've had maybe 10, 15 teachers and one of them might be a female. And for this reason, we also work in training up female teachers um, at One Girl, and that's one of our programs is actually looking at rural areas and training Mm -hmm. up female teachers to be sort of star role models for girls because you can't underestimate, I think, the impact of if you can see it, you can be it. And that's sort of just a few of of the um, barriers that girls experience. There are so many more that I could I could talk on for days. Yeah. Yeah, and that's why it's important to sort of take a holistic approach and all of our programs at One Girl, they might not, I think often people think, oh, it's just a scholarship, but it's beyond that. It's not just access. It's not just getting your foot in the door. It's actually being able to stay there and making sure you have a supportive environment both in the home and at school. Because you guys do work as well with, you're calling it awesomeization of schools. So it's not just a scholarship. Tell us what, what that's about. Yeah, so we also look at factors, and that was something else that I was going to going to touch on. So um, we also look at so our school awesomeization program mm-hmm. and then also our launch pad program. We have very quirky names. They look at both water sanitation and hygiene and menstrual hygiene. So they take a really um, girl-friendly focus on water sanitation and hygiene. So often schools don't have, um, the majority of schools don't have toilets um, where we work. And they also don't have any education around health and hygiene and around menstrual hygiene. So you can imagine if uh, it's hard enough, you know, here in Victoria recently, we've just um, passed legislation to allow all girls in school to have access to pads and tampons because we realise that that is is a real issue for girls to be able to attend and excel in school. So if you don't even have a toilet where you can change it and you also don't have a pad, um, it makes a huge difference to girls being able to excel um, yeah, and, and thrive within schools. And it's the same as um, water sanitation and hygiene, so looking at training around hand washing, around preparation of food to ensure um, girls mm-hmm. are healthy and able to continue attending. Yeah. Uh, so... Beforehand, like we were talking about role models um, and what impact that can have of girls going through school. Um, So I come from a family of really well-educated women. I have three sisters and my grandmother, who is 85, only retired last year from a career as a medical doctor. And um, yeah, I actually did software engineering because my mother did it and she 
she tells me about how she went to um, university in Sydney and uh, Sydney Uni, and she was the only girl there. And the professor right at the start, every lecture would go, gentlemen, gentlemen, and lady, like right at the end, just to keep quieting everyone down. But... I'm really interested, I I can testify that the benefits passed down uh, from one generation to the other of educated women. How is life different for the child of an educated mother in in Uganda and Sierra Leone? Yeah, I think I can totally relate to that as well. And I think a lot of people from um, privileged backgrounds in Australia can definitely relate to that. Um, I come from a family of three women and also my mother was a teacher and I think she really instilled that passion of education in me and that's why I'm in this career path in many ways. And, yeah, I think that, as I sort of mentioned before, an educated mother is equipped with tools and knowledge that she can share with her children and she can impart with them. So even looking at a mother who's literate can help a child with homework. Mm. You really can't undervalue what that actually means. Um, And I think also, you know, looking at how much she's able to help her child with healthcare, able to actually recognise when her child is sick, also understand the healthcare system, understand um, social welfare systems, aspects like that. Also looking at her income generating potential. So as I mentioned before, um, or when a woman is educated, so her income increases for every year. And then that means that that mother is able to then invest that in her child. And, you know, I talked about one of our programs and how we've seen that. And globally, the statistics say that women invest 90% of their income in their families. So that's looking at healthcare, that's looking at nutrition, everything, um, education as well. And for men, that's 30 to 40% that they invest. Yeah, right. Yeah. Right. Um, So I guess this is a show about climate change and I think the link between the education of women and climate change is not an obvious one. Can you explain why educating women is good for the climate? Of course. Um, yeah, it's it's funny when I was speaking about to a few people about how they was coming on this show, I constantly mm. got, what? But you do girls' education, Erica. What does that have to do with climate change? But increasingly so, more and more, like I read the drawdown as soon as it came out, it was very much buzzing around the office. Mm. Um, so, yeah, fast, it's a little bit more obvious, but I, I can see how it's not an obvious link. So I think one of the ways that I... Th- like has already been spoken about on this show a little bit is the link between education and family planning. And, but the benefits do extend beyond this, which I'll talk a little bit about and in ways that you wouldn't really expect and the ripple effect of girls education and, and women that are educated. So to clarify first, um, you know, I'm not saying that it's better or worse to have smaller or larger families, but research does show that educated women have smaller and healthier families. So it's really about choice, not chance. And, uh, you know, obviously less children equals less food, which equals more available resources. And then another reason beyond family planning is actually looking at the prescribed gender roles of women and girls. So in many communities where we work, women play sort of a community management role. And that means that they are protectors of the environment and they also have control over or a certain amount of control or um, influence over water and agriculture. And they have a lot of um, 
involvement in that. So if you combine this with other um, impacts of educating girls and women, which include increased decision-making skills, leadership and critical thinking, um, you can see how it's a really important um, aspect for us when we want to understand, adapt and protect our natural environment in the future. So it has been also proven that women are more effective at protecting and sustaining the natural environment and also have higher agricultural outputs in in many cases. So I'll give an example of um, in One Girls programs how we've seen the power of education and how women, the flow-on effect and how women educate other women. So we constantly talk about this every – I've done a lot of – as I was talking about, we do a lot of evaluations and reflective practice. And I've done quite a few research projects and evaluations recently and the common thread is always the knowledge sharing and this sort of mentorship of other girls and women and other community members. Um, And one example that I'll give is from one of our programs that runs in both Sierra Leone and Uganda in slightly different forms – This program works in life skills. So it combines both practical skills, so some technical skill sets to earn greater income and to challenge sort of typically feminine pathways, um, and then also combines that with leadership, confidence building, decision-making skills. I was recently meeting with a, a group of girls, a circle of girls in a focus group, and I had girls as young as eight years old and as old as about 19. And a few of these girls were telling me about the impact of the program. So they'd learnt about in this program, they'd learnt about leadership, confidence building, but also water and sanitation and hygiene. And as a result of that, they'd actually gone back to their parents and they'd asked them to build a latrine. Mm -hmm. So multiple of these girls now had composting latrines within their households. Before this, they were defecating, drinking and bathing in the same water. Okay. And that's sort of the impact that they can they can influence and I don't think you can underestimate what an influence no. that makes in a community where there's no sanitation yeah. whatsoever. And that's young girls and looking at the impact that they can yeah. really have on their parents and practices and yeah. behaviour change. Yeah. I think what really strikes me is so important with one girl is that you're not just investing in a single girl's education, but it seems to set in motion this chain reaction that constantly returns on this initial investment of a single child. Uh, and and I, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm blown away by how great it is. But w- I guess... It's hard enough for women in developed countries to have that have a long history of women fighting for rights. What are some of the challenges posed to educating women in Sierra Leone and Uganda? Yeah, so I think, um, yeah, I agree. Globally, women and girls still have um, a long way to come in terms of fighting for their rights. But there are some unique and perhaps more extreme challenges that are experienced in lower income countries. I think I I touched on a few of those before, looking at sort of your home life, looking at Mm -hmm. um, the school and then the community. So, yeah, some of those barriers, including um, access to school and looking at the household poverty, also Mm -hmm. looking at um, sexual and gender-based violence um, at a community level, how teenage pregnancy and child marriage affects a girl. So... um, you can't underestimate, I think, the impact that that can have and how much that can prevent a girl from 
going to school or also continuing in school Um, and beyond that looking at her supportive environment who is within the community that is going to encourage her to go to school um, so she has mentorship and those female role models yeah yeah Sierra Leone is predominantly a Muslim country. Uganda is mostly Roman Catholic. The first thing that would come to a lot of listeners' minds is that religious traditions can form an obstacle to the education of women. Have you got, have you found that? Yeah, I think that um, it's important to remember um, the multiple barriers that I've previously mentioned that prevent a girl from succeeding in school. Um, and maybe it's less about religion or a specific religion, but rather about practices. And I think those practices vary across different cultures and contexts. So some of these practices include beliefs around contraception, the age a girl should marry and the age of becoming a woman, including what menstruation means. And I'll give a little example on um, menstruation because we do a lot of work in menstrual hygiene management and periods with young girls and women. So one girl has multiple sexual and reproductive health and rights programs because we really believe that it is integral to streamline sexual and reproductive health and rights across any approach for girls' education. And one of the programs that we run is particularly in, in menstrual hygiene management or periods. So basically what we do is we increase access to products and then we also do education and on reducing the stigma around getting your period. And what we found is whenever you ask those, and I've asked multiple girls and women about, you know, what what it means to get your period, you know, what what does that mean? What is that coming of age um, to, to a girl? Um, in those countries and what they've said is that it's it's equated to being ready for for sex or marriage and in many in many cases it's also believed that it means a girl is sexually active uh, which then may mean that she is also ready Mm -hmm. for marriage and then if you couple that with a lack of information about healthy sexual relationships and uh, um, sex education just at a school level um, then uh, that that of that can also prevent that can lead to teenage pregnancy and it can lead to child marriage because there's a lack of contraceptives and then also a lack of information around what to do um, in sexual relationships. So I think it's yeah it's not really just about religious beliefs because if you use the example of here in Australia as well we're a multi faith and multicultural society and there are still barriers. You know, um, for girls, there are still many things that block success both in and outside of the classroom. So look at women in the workforce. If we just look at the percentage of female CEOs in Australia, which I believe is around 17%, Mm. and just women in leadership, and that's connecting back to that female role models piece. So it's not something necessarily unique to a religion. Um, Yeah, I think that's an important takeaway. And this is why sort of we look at, all of those different aspects and really make sure that it's a holistic approach like you were talking about because one thing is not enough. Great. Again, I really, really encourage you to support the work of One Girl. It's it's rare that a dollar you donate will have such wide-ranging benefits. I'm always torn between donating to money to people that are, that are suffering right now and for the environment to help people later down the line. With One Girl, you can have both. Uh, Erica, where can people find out more? 
All right. So thank you so much for the opportunity to speak to you today and also to plug One Girl, my favourite thing to do. Um, so, yeah, One Girl is really on the forefront of girls' education in in Australia where you know, the only organisation that really specifically focuses on adolescent girls and their education. Um, and, you know, I'll just give you sort of three main takeaways from, from what we've been talking about today and then how you can find out more. Right. So just number one is sort of educating girls leads to smaller and healthier families, and this means more food for less people. And number two is women are amazing ambassadors for the environment and play a super important role in protecting and adapting to our changing climate. Number three is when a girl is educated, she gives back. So if you equip her with knowledge, the ripple effect is really enormous. And if you want to learn more about this amazing ripple effect of girls' education and what we're doing in Sierra Leone and Uganda and in Australia, um, go to onegirl.org.au to learn more and don't forget to click the donate button please <laughs> thank you so much thank you so much erica for coming on the show and the very best of luck in the future erica bertelson from is the international program director for one girl the fair go for pensioners coalition is holding a free conference on the 10th of july at the greek orthodox church 23 to 29 victoria street coburg the conference will take a look at whether the Aussie fair go still matters, ask why there's a crisis of trust in politicians and institutions, and question why public welfare services are increasingly private and costly. We'll also consider what action we can take to build the future we want. Limited places are available, and bookings before the 10th of June are essential. Email eventsfgfpvictoria at gmail.com or call 477 236-880. Fair Go for Pensioners Coalition. Free conference, 10th of July in Coburg. A 3CR supporter. I have on the phone Michael West. West has a long career, is an investigative journalist, first at The Australian, then at Fairfax. Last year, he was appointed adjunct associate professor for Sydney University Social and Political Science, which is my alma mater. I was talking about that before. He specialises in just that, following the money. Last week, West, together with Greenpeace's investigation unit, released Dirty Power, a short documentary and report detailing Big Coal's network of influence over the coalition government. Michael, welcome to the show. Good to be on the show, Kurt. First of all, great documentary. My only criticism is that I wish it went on longer and went into a little bit more detail. You explain the influence from Big Coal over the government through a map of three spokes, industry groups, lobbying and the media. Let's start with industry groups, particularly the Minerals Council of Australia. How does influence operate here? Well, you've got the revolving doors, uh, Kurt, which I think the human... I mean, these lobby groups have a lot of money for a start, OK? So I've got a bunch of people, uh, usually experts in media and uh, sort of whatever the industry field is. In this case, it's coal and minerals. Uh, not many people sharing very big salaries, um, but generally are well-connected. Mm. Uh, so it's the human connections. There's people... We identified people like John Kunkel, who was... Um, a senior person at the Minerals Council, which is the coal peak body, going to work in the Prime Minister's office, then going back to the Minerals Council. Uh, and so it's, that, it's those human influences 
are really that are just as important as the money and the political donations. Yep. Yeah, we have uh, the industry groups represent the the public face, while lobby groups, which is the second spoke, seem far more shadowy, and their influence is much more difficult to quantify. Which is, I think, what you were talking about with those those person interpersonal connections. The lobby group Crosby Texter, with ties to Gina Reinhart's Glencore, ran Project Caesar. Can you describe what uh, Project Caesar for us, please? Yes, this was um, this lobby group, Crosby, Texas. It's very close to the Libs, uh, always has been. It, the lobby groups are generally, but not always, politically aligned. Now, um, in this case, Project Caesar, uh, what they were paid um, many millions of dollars, uh, I think, offshore, um, to undermine renewable energy targets and to boost coal and so to sort of push the climate denial uh, angle but also just to to run that line that you see in the conservative uh, media mm. uh, that renewables are expensive and coal's cheap and that yep. it's reliable power and these kind of you know the usual talking points so a lot of money was spent by Glencore on this they're uh, one of Australia's biggest coal miners if not the biggest um, and uh, so Crosby Texter, then the chief executive mm. Crosby Texter, a guy called Yaron Finkelstein, uh, when Scott Morrison became prime minister, he moved over to become Scott Morrison's um, uh, principal private secretary. So yeah. he's in his, the prime minister's ear all day. Yeah, it's it's quite it's quite incredible um, when you get, when you get down to the nature of influence from lobby groups on the government. It appears to be obscured by so much noise and the news cycle you really have to be paying attention to see to see what's there and that's what's so great about about dirty power um it's such a big deal but it's it's one we so rarely hear about these interpersonal connections how much does this type of influence rely on the public not paying attention well, a lot. I mean, as you pointed out, uh, Kurt, earlier on, the lobby groups are very sort of behind the scenes, sort of snaking around the halls of power, mm. seeking to influence people, whereas the associations, so the, the sort of peak bodies, like the Minerals Council, they're pumping out press releases all day. So one uh, is very public and the other ones are very, very private. You won't be able to get their financial statements. If you go on their website, it's just a bunch of glossy sort of uh, motherhood statements and nothing about who their clients are. Even the lobbyist register, you know, the federal lobby register just wipes the slate clean when there's, the deal is no longer on. So there's nothing historical on there. So this is very secretive stuff about who does jobs for whom. And, um, of course, the third leg of it all is the, is the sort of the media arm, if you, if you, if you yeah. would, which is principally the Murdoch. Uh, press and they too, we established a number of revolving doors too between the Murdoch Press, uh, which is you know Sky News and and the Australian and all the state um, daily the tabloids, and uh, you know senior journalists are going to work for political staffers all the time. Now this happens in Labor too with the with the left wing right. journalists, uh, but it just seems that with the right wing uh, journalists and the pro coal people. It all, it's all pretty much tied to one media organisation, and that's Rupert Murdoch's News Corp. Yeah, yeah. So I, I'm, I'm really interested in that, that, that third spoke, which is the Murdoch media. Um, I, I, although I, I do, th I also think it's really interesting that I, I think there's a lot of people 
in Australia that are aware of News Corp's reach and pro-fossil fuel agenda that they've had. I mean, it's, it's not the most subtle thing in the world. But you had to create this report and documentary with Greenpeace, funded by Greenpeace, rather than putting it out through ABC or Fairfax. What does that say about the state of the media at the moment? Well, the mainstream media is very, um, as it shrinks, and it becomes a more financially precarious proposition. You know, you've seen the merger of Nine mm. Network with Fairfax. Uh, that's There's a shrinking of the ad revenue. So as ad revenue shrinks, um, the media organisations become more dependent on what media, avenue, uh, media revenue remains. And when it comes to business journalism, the Australian and the Financial Review, basically they tend to run a pro-business line on everything mm. until the story breaks that they can't ignore. Yeah. Uh, they don't run critical investigations. They would never have run this coal stuff. Uh, then again, no other mainstream media would have run it, perhaps except The Guardian, but... Um, they they've done some good work in this area, but but uh, nobody's quite drawn it together and it's quite as comprehensively. And it's really a lot of it's on the public record. And we managed to get a few documents that were sort of behind the scenes, you know, email lists for all Parliament House staffers and so on, to sort of cross reference it against LinkedIn and, uh, wow. and so forth. But there's a real problem with the, the mainstream media, and the ABC is often timid when it comes to criticising big business because they're, they're gun-shy from being, one, attacked by the government and, two, attacked by the Murdoch press. Yeah. And so they tend to self-censor when it comes to big business. It's kind of their job, though, right? <laughs> well, it is their job, and I've sort of been a bit critical of them and sort of said that, you know, uh, you know, there's $6 million spent on this new lifestyle uh, yep. part of the ABC, and there's no lack of lifestyle media anywhere. You can find it everywhere, you know, lifestyle cooking and uh, how to leave your partner and this sort of stuff, you know, like... Yeah, there's a lot of this stuff around. So I think they should be spending that money on serious, uh, you know, investigative journalism. But they have some excellent journalists there at the yeah. ABC, no doubt about that. But, of course, a lot of them feel as though they're a little bit constrained by sort of management uh, timidity uh, in terms of locking horns with powerful vested interests because, of course, they get complaints. Yep. And same with same with the other media. You know, I used to be at Fairfax, and eventually they got rid of me because there were too many complaints by a big right. business. Right. Um, so I'd like just to move back to the exact nature of influence and how it manifests itself. So not not to name any names, but there have been instances where a politician retires from Canberra, then moves straight onto a board at a major coal lobby group, did you become aware of any explicit quid pro quo, or is the arrangement much more subtle to, than that? Well, it's you know it's it's much more subtle than that. Nobody's ever going to say, you know, I did these favours for these guys in government. Now I've gone and joined them. Yeah. Uh, but there are instances where um, you know the, the the most controversial in recent times was um, the Liberal Party. Um, um, forgotten his name now. The guy, Ian that, McFarlane. No, and no, McFarlane then is a classic example. Went to the work for the Minerals Council after being, uh, sorry, Queensland Resources Council, which is like the Minerals Council of Queensland, very powerful. After being Resources Minister, um, so he's the most celebrated case. But there's the other guy that sold the port in Darwin to the Chinese and then went and worked for them. Um, so or leased the port rather. And yeah. that was a very controversial uh, arrangement. And really, they should, in other countries, they have a prohibition on going off to work 
for an industry uh, after you've been in politics, you've got to have a cooling off period um, because otherwise it's still pretty fresh. But it, it's, even if there's a cooling off period, you've still got this, this business of mates in government, not just the politicians in power of the day. But if you're, I mean, let's say Labor wins the election now, you're going to have a flood of Labor Party, um, uh, uh, ex-Labor Party politicians and yeah. lobbyists down to Canberra because now their mates are in power right. and they'll be able to pull favours. And people like Cosby Texter and, and, the, uh, and, and, the, and the conservative ones, they'll be sort of out of favour. Uh, so this is a chance for these lobby groups to really strut their stuff when their party is in power. And that's what happens every time. And, of course, Labor's no clean skin on um, on resources. I mean, they really were much more to blame than the Liberals for the debacle in mm-hmm. LNG and the situation in gas markets. In fact, they've just promised another $1.5 billion in gas subsidies to large gas companies yeah. should they get into power. So gas, as you know, is not that le- much less polluting than no. coal. So there are... There are conflicts there. I mean, it's on both sides of politics, and wherever there's political donations, we're going to have these conflicts. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show, Michael. It's it's so important to understand how power and money operate in Can- Canberra with regards to undermining action on climate change. Um, it's really, really reassuring to know that there are tenacious investigative journalists willing to swim against the tide and immerse themselves in detail for the benefit of democracy. Thanks again, Michael. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks, Kurt. Okay, thank you. Hi, I'm Kim Salmon. I'd like to have a quick word about uh, public radio, particularly 3CR. The thing about public radio is that it's more open than the more formatted types of radio to what's going on around it. So when you listen to it, you're more likely to hear a reflection of real life. And 3CR being in the heart of Smith Street, Collingwood, is a particularly good example of what I'm talking about. If you'd like to uh, subscribe, the number is 94198377. You've been listening Those who tune in regularly will know at this point of the show we usually inform our listeners of events in their community that they can participate in to help combat climate change. There is only one event on this week, but it's the most important one of all. This weekend, voters will go and decide our next Prime Minister. For decades, science scientists have been warning us about the consequences of man-made climate change, and throughout it, all Australia has done is next to nothing. In that time, we have seen instances of drought, fire and flood increase in frequency and severity. For the last three years, have been the hottest on record. In summer, it's so hot, bats drop out of the air and koalas fall from trees. Out in the streets, school children are protesting this inaction and begging for a future approximate to our own. We are standing at the edge of an abyss and finally, we have a full view of what lies beyond. This could well be the last election where we can correct our catastrophic inaction of the past two decades. When you go to vote, please take this into account. 
If you know someone that is undecided, someone who has children, someone who wants to have children, let them all know what is at stake when they go to the polls. If you have a relative in another part of the country, let them know too. I'm not engaging in hyperbole when I say that the world depends on it. Thank you to Dr. Helen Redman, Erica Bertelson, Michael West for coming on the show. Thank you for Viv for her first interview on this show and Andy. Next up is Earth Matters. This is Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show and you're listening to 3CR. Friends. 